0: This is Addiction Medicine Journal Club. I'm Dr. John Keenan.
1: And I'm Dr. Sonia Del Tredici.
0: We believe that addiction is a disease that can be treated, and we want to help you stay up to date with the latest research that you can use in your addiction medicine practice. This week, we're going to review an article that compares 16 and 24 milligrams of buprenorphine. What's new with you this week, Sonia?
1: It's been a great week. I have been thinking about a few things in addiction medicine. One is how Rite Aid just filed for bankruptcy. I read an article in the New York Times about this. And part of the problem is that they're facing over a thousand separate lawsuits for filling illegal prescriptions, most of them for opioids. And so these were prescriptions that clearly had red flags for being illegal. And it made me think about the pharmacies that we work with. I mean, pharmacists have a lot of discretion on what pills they will dispense. Like, they're not just robots spitting out orders put in by the physician. You know, one of their responsibilities is to make sure those prescriptions are safe. And I can think of many times when pharmacists have saved a life by catching a bad prescription from a physician and changing it, fixing it, letting us know that there's a problem. So I really appreciate our pharmacists. But obviously, in the opioid prescribing epidemic, they were not
0: always so vigilant,
1: and those lawsuits are now coming down the pipeline for them.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's really kind of a sad uh, state that that's kind of going under.
1: Yeah, I like Rite Aid,
0: and you're right; they the pharmacists are great. I mean, like whenever something's suspicious, they'll call, pick up the phone, or vice versa. Whenever they're not comfortable with something I'm doing, they'll they'll let me know why that they think that it should be something different. think that that's that's happened before unfortunately one time where they picked up a a really good catch it was mostly because the patient adultered the script afterwards but i appreciate the catch
1: no i've i've always really appreciated the pharmacist i have a memory from back in i guess residency where a patient had uh, warfarin prescription had been changed. I think she had switched from one milligram tablets to five milligram tablets, and we thought that would make it easier for her. But she continued to take five of the tablets instead of five of the ones. She was taking 25 milligrams of warfarin a day. And the pharmacist, when she came for an early refill, you know, dug into it a little deeper and figured out what was going on and made her sit in his little office while he called us. And then we had her. INR sort of emergently drawn, and I, I think it was it was undetectably high, whatever off the charts, off the analyzer. So great catches, but with these opioids, I think because there's not a clearly defined standard for what is an appropriate dose, there's no official ceiling, it was hard for the pharmacist to know what was a red flag prescription. And I still think the pharmacists sometimes are not sure of what's an appropriate prescription for an opiate. You know, I run into issues with buprenorphine. And I have pharmacies in our area that sometimes refuse to fill prescriptions that I've written because they tell me that those prescriptions are unsafe and I vigorously disagree with them. For example, giving some of the buprenorphine monoproducts instead of the buprenorphine naloxone combination. There's several pharmacies in our area that won't fill that prescription because they say it's non-standard, you know, for example.
0: It's interesting. I've never encountered that, but I'm sure it's happening.
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's in our more rural county in St. Max's catchment area that I'm seeing that, especially with smaller pharmacies. And they're very wary. I think because of these lawsuits, they're very wary of kind of crossing a line. And so I think they've become overvigilant about their opioid prescriptions and maybe maybe for the better. Yeah. How about you? What struck you in addiction medicine news this week?
0: Um, So actually I was just reading my general news of the day at CNN and actually an article came across that I was really kind of interested and excited about it's back to this ban on menthol menthol and flavored cigarettes. So it's basically the articles called FDA takes momentous step towards banning menthol cigarettes and flavored cigarettes. And I think we talked in a previous episode how they were kind of doing this listening campaign, kind of the FDA about they have oversight where they can regulate the content of tobacco and nicotine containing products. So they could actually with like one swoop, choose to remove all menthol and all flavored uh, tobacco products at once they have that authority i think they've been hesitant to i had no idea really that this has been going on they've been floating this idea since 2013 so they've had a decade where they've been contemplating this move we talked about um, last uh, april 2022 they actually were proposing standards and those standards were going to be to remove menthol and also uh, flavored tobacco products and actually, they just submitted at the end of October, the FDA placed onto the president's desk, uh, the White House Office of Management and Budget to review final rules and standards for the absence of menthol and flavored tobacco products. So I think we're getting closer to that. They do kind of expect that immediately there's going to be a countersuit by the tobacco products, uh, for tobacco producing and the tobacco lobbyists. So I think we're not like totally done yet, but I do see that coming. And You know, the article also took, I think we know that kind of African Americans tend to kind of smoke more menthol cigarettes. I did not realize kind of the extent of how that product, um, those two products, the flavored cigarettes, but also the menthol cigarettes, they really target like two populations that are kind of at risk. So the flavored cigarettes substantially target children and kind of the the people entering the smoking force. But actually, the menthol cigarettes almost exclusively, it's 83% of black smokers smoke menthol. So it really hits a group that kind of has some social disparities of health. So I really hope that uh, they're able to pass this and I hope that it's something that will kind of limit further smokers down the line.
1: You know, I was just talking with a menthol smoker today about quitting smoking. Um she needs to quit urgently for an upcoming surgery and we talked about not just nicotine replacement but menthol replacement like she's going to focus on, you know, kind of minty Listerine breath strips and other things to satisfy that urge for the menthol flavoring that has become inexorably tied to the nicotine urge. I have I've no idea if that's scientific or not. Um, are you ready to hear about our article?
0: Yeah, I'm excited about this one.
1: This article that we're going to talk about tonight is called Buprenorphine Dose and Time to Discontinuation Among Patients with Opioid Use Disorder in the Era of Fentanyl. It was published in JAMA Network Open in September 2023, so just maybe about six weeks before we're recording this episode. And this article got a lot of press. 24 separate news outlets profiled this article that sort of took it up to the top 5% of all research articles from JAMA Network Open in terms of attention that it got. So it got a ton of attention, and it's about dose of buprenorphine, appropriate dose of buprenorphine. So as we all know, the illicit opioid supply is primarily made up of fentanyl and its fentanyl analogs, and they're hugely addictive and they're also deadly. So there were almost 73,000 fentanyl-related overdose deaths in 2022. As well as the potency that leads to the uh, respiratory depression and death, fentanyl has a bit of a different effect on the brain than heroin did. Um, Fentanyl's potent opioid agonism likely causes more opioid receptor downregulation than the other less potent opioids. So basically, it leaves you with no opioid receptors. And this significant downregulation leads to more rapid tolerance. But also, it means that patients who want to use buprenorphine to recover from fentanyl addiction, they probably require much higher doses to activate those few remaining opioid receptors than patients might have in the past. So again, fentanyl has caused a massive downregulation in opioid receptors potentially. And because of that, you need higher doses of opioids, you know, be it fentanyl, be it buprenorphine, to activate those small number of remaining receptors. And we see that in clinical practice when we see patients who need higher doses of buprenorphine than they used to in the past. So the buprenorphine dosing guidelines were written prior to the emergence of fentanyl and they have not been updated. So they say that 16 milligrams is the recommended target dose and 24 milligrams is considered a max dose, a high dose. But now that patients are primarily using fentanyl, you know, our illicit drug supply is mostly fentanyl, many of us in practice are finding that our new patients They don't feel comfortable or normal on 16 milligrams of buprenorphine. It's just not enough. And they require 24 milligrams a day or more. And I'm seeing that in my practice. Most of my new patients are, you know, we might try 16, but quickly they're titrating to 20, 24 milligrams. And that's where they feel stable. John, have you seen this trend in your own practice?
0: I've started to see more kind of patients coming to me like stable or kind of from other areas on 24 milligrams. You're right. It was relatively rare before. But yeah, definitely something I see more of than I used to, although I take a lot more patients too. So I'm not sure if that's also a reflection of just that that's like a reputation I have in the community. So it, it's just
1: very interesting to me because I previously, I felt like a dose of 24 milligrams of buprenorphine was kind of suspicious. Like it it meant that maybe there was diversion going on or the doctor had been prescribing too much or something. But I see it so frequently now. I do feel like I have to reevaluate what I think about that dose. So, the clinical question in this study is what is the association between buprenorphine dose and retention and treatment in the era of fentanyl? So, do different buprenorphine doses lead to different rates of treatment retention? Currently, not in the past when the drug supply was different. The population was people in Rhode Island. This was a study done on Rhode Island residents who were initiating buprenorphine for opiate use disorder in the years 2016 through 2020, and their data is from the Rhode Island PDMP. So this is a database of everybody who got a controlled substance in the state of Rhode Island. They excluded some people who were taking buprenorphine for pain management rather than opiate use disorder. They excluded those pain management-focused formulations, and they excluded injectable buprenorphine. They also, just because of how the database is structured, they didn't include data from opioid treatment programs like methadone programs who were dispensing directly or correctional facilities. In terms of demographics, about 61% of patients were male. They were young, age was 25 to 44, and 90% had some kind of insurance because Rhode Island did accept the Medicaid expansion and most residents of the state do have insurance. So that's who it was exposure was the daily dose of buprenorphine based on the initial prescription so the initial dose of buprenorphine was what was looked at in this study and the outcomes were time to treatment discontinuation in the first 180 days after initiation this is an outcome measure that aligns with national quality forum measures of treatment success with opiate use disorder what percent of patients are still in treatment 6 months after starting they also looked at what the initial daily doses were. They looked at who got films versus tablets. And of course, they collected a bunch of sociodemographic characteristics like gender, age, health insurance status, when buprenorphine was started, um, how far they had to travel to the pharmacy, other medications. So a bunch of sociodemographic outcomes. But basically, the main question is, does the initial dose of buprenorphine have any relation to what percent of patients are able to stay in treatment or still be in treatment at six months? So, what do you think of the clinical question, John?
0: I mean, that's really valid, right? I think that's what we all want to do—is retention to treatment. I know that there is a lot of discussion about kind of this fentanyl era. Uh, we have to kind of reevaluate our toolbox for this. So, I, I've seen um, some literature about kind of a push for more methadone prescribing uh, in lieu of buprenorphine. But it's interesting to see can we kind of still. Uh, Utilize all of our outpatient docs prescribing and maybe just use a higher dose? It's, It's an interesting question.
1: Let's talk about validity. So, overall, I thought the clinical question in this trial was really good and they defined it well. But because this is a database study, it seemed to have even more limitations than many of the other kind of retrospective cohort database studies that we have looked at in the past. So, let's talk about strengths. This was a large trial. It had 6,499 patients. they tried to control for some factors, so they control for patients who were lost to follow-up. They control for some of the confounders that they came across. The groups were similar at baseline in the broadest demographic categories, but there are so many unmeasured confounders that it's hard to say that the groups of people who started at 16 milligrams versus 24 milligrams were similar at baseline. And those are just not things that are measured in the PDMP. Things like how sick you were, how, what dose of fentanyl you were using illicitly, whether you've been on buprenorphine before, whether you, what your age was, what your past experience was, none of that, I mean, your age was captured, but none of that other stuff was captured in the database. So it's very hard to say that the two groups at the different doses were similar at baseline. They did do two sensitivity analyses, so they excluded patients who got a prescription but most likely never started the medication, so they received less than seven days of buprenorphine in a six-month period. And they also looked at day 30, so they looked at who was getting what dose not during the initial prescription but at day 30 to account for kind of initial dosing changes within the first month when most titration takes place. And both of those sensitivity analyses led to similar results. They also did some exploratory analyses among patient-prescribed 8 milligrams of buprenorphine, but there weren't very many of them, so that analysis didn't really show a difference. There was not a difference between people prescribed 8 and 16 milligrams at this point. They didn't have to exclude very many people. Only about 3% were excluded And they also looked at timing. Um, Dosing in different years of treatment initiation was similar between the two groups, but the 24-milligram dose began to be used more frequently as time went on. So by 2020, 15% of patients were on the 24-milligram dose, and that's much more than it was in 2016. Finally, I didn't think funding would cause bias. It was funded by NIDA and the National Institute for Mental Health. So those are some strengths, some weaknesses Um, The biggest one is that it's a retrospective cohort study. It looks at a wide range of clinical facilities, patient demographics, types of clinicians prescribing buprenorphine. So it's very difficult to eliminate the compounding factors that may have led to the choice of dose and affected the patient's time in treatment. I mean, it's everything from a clinic like ours to a clinic maybe they required you to come in every week. I don't even know. To telemedicine, all kinds of clinics were included in this. They didn't report on adverse events. I would have liked to know if the higher doses led to any more adverse events. They didn't have data from correctional facilities. Many of our incarcerated patients are on buprenorphine um, or from the opioid treatment programs. And the outcome, which was retention in treatment, is clinically significant. But I would have loved to see other clinical outcomes, including death, overdoses, and other opioid-related complications. So I thought this was a valid trial for the question that it asked. but I don't feel that the, I feel that the difference between the two groups at baseline was likely pretty large. So it's a little hard to do a head-to-head comparison between the 60 milligram and the 24 milligram dose. So what do you think, John?
0: I have a question. During this kind of treatment period, how, how was kind of fentanyl, what was the rise of that nationally at that time?
1: It's a good question. I don't know the answer offhand. Fentanyl contamination of the drug supply was rising during that time. And by now in 2023, three, it's almost all of the drug supply is fentanyl.
0: Yeah, I I guess I would just like that historical context just because of that four-year period of time. It does kind of seem like kind of anecdotally when we're starting to see more of this. I just wasn't sure if there was any kind of comment about kind of how that changed throughout the study.
1: We'll have to look. They didn't comment on it in the paper itself, but maybe we can figure it out and we'll include it for our listeners. So I'm ready to talk about the results. The results of this paper were very easy to understand and simple, which I appreciated. The first question, which is the primary outcome, is what percent of patients had discontinued treatment at 180 days or what percent of patients were still in treatment at 180 days? So more patients left treatment on the 16 milligram dose than the 24 milligram dose. So 59% of patients on the 16 milligram dose left treatment only 53% on the 24-milligram dose left treatment. And that gave us a hazard ratio of 1.2 and a number needed to treat of 17 to keep a patient in treatment for 180 days. You would have had to switch 17 patients from 16 to 24 milligrams. So that's a pretty clear benefit to the 24-milligram dose. They also looked at whether patients required a dose change. So In the 16 milligram initiation dose, 39% of patients required a dose change, and almost all of those were dose increases. In the 24 milligram initiation dose group, 26% required a dose change, and some of those had increases as well, up even beyond that 24 milligram dose. The average time to dose change was also much shorter in the 16 milligram group. So more patients in the 16 milligram initiation group had to be titrated up. When they did their little side analysis between 16 and 8-milligram initial dosing, they did not see any difference between those two groups. So at this point, the 8-milligram and 16-milligram doses are equally effective and less effective at keeping people in treatment than the 24-milligram initiation dose. If you're interested in what percent of people ended up on the 24-milligram dose, remember, this was not a randomized controlled trial. Patients were not split equally between the two doses. So only 10% of patients were on the 24-milligram dose. 50% were on the 16 milligram dose and 21% were on the 8 milligram dose for initiation. So people on that higher dose were a minority in this data set. And as I said, they might've been sicker or different in some way than the other patients. So it's a little hard to compare them. So will these results help me in patient care? I think so. Um, My patients are similar to those in this study. The treatment is feasible. I do prescribe 24 milligrams. The benefit is good. Retention and treatment, that's a great benefit for patients. And if you assume about a 50% relapse rate for those leaving treatment with buprenorphine, that's a very big benefit. If you can keep people in treatment, you can prevent relapse. In terms of harms, they didn't report any harms in this study. I personally don't see many harms of buprenorphine other than relatively mild side effects. So I'm not sure there would have been a lot more harms in the higher dose group. And the number needed to treat of 17 is pretty good to keep someone in treatment for 180 days. So, in conclusion, I personally will be more comfortable using doses higher than 16 milligrams right out of the gate if I need to. I also have stopped, and this paper helps cement that decision. I've stopped viewing doses uh, higher than 16 milligrams as suspicious. Previously, I viewed that as a little bit of a red flag. But looking at this paper, if patients on the 24 milligram dose were somehow riskier, sicker, riskier, something was wrong with them, they would be less successful in treatment, you'd think, in this study. And this study showed that they were more successful in treatment, that that dose led to better treatment success than a lower dose. So this study really just makes me feel more comfortable with those higher doses of buprenorphine. And as an aside, similar articles have shown the same thing about methadone, that methadone dosing has not caught up with the needs in the era of fentanyl. And patients also might do better who are on methadone if they're allowed to start and titrate up to higher doses more quickly. How about you, John? Will this article change how you think of that higher dose?
0: I think that um, maybe I was a little less suspicious at the baseline than kind of you were describing, but certainly it makes me feel more comfortable with it. And I think that the you know I, I do have some people that have kind of over the years really showed me that they need that dose, and so I think that because of that I have less reservation. It'd be interesting to see. I guess I still don't know who I'm going to escalate to 24 very quickly though out of the you know out of the gate, because so I think most of the time what what kind of results in kind of an escalation at least that I've seen classically is like someone on 16 still struggling ends up using and continues to use, and then they kind of end up on the 24. I guess I I would love to kind of define a population before it gets to that point that would benefit.
1: Yeah, me too, because most of my patients, if they're buprenorphine naive and starting fresh, they're doing an induction at home, and I have an induction protocol that takes them up to 16 milligrams in the first week and then they come to me after a week. And if they're not doing well, then I titrate up at that point. But I don't have a protocol that lets patients take themselves up to 24 milligrams as part of their home induction, especially if they're not on buprenorphine already. So maybe I need to figure that out and put that into a new handout for people.
0: It's a great article. I appreciate uh, making me feel really comfortable with that topic though.
1: Yeah, me too. I'm really glad we covered it.
0: Well, thank you for listening to the Addiction Medicine Journal Club. The best part of any journal club is the conversation, and we want to hear what you have to say. To have your opinions about the article included in future episodes, send us your comments on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Spotify, email, or join our Facebook group. The links are in the show notes. Original theme music was composed and performed by Benjamin Kennedy, audio editing by Aaron McHugh, produced by Dr. Patrick Beeman and Ars Longa Media. Addiction Medicine Journal Club is intended for educational purposes only and should not be considered medical advice. The views expressed here are our own and do not necessarily reflect those of our employers or the authors of the articles we review. All patient information has been modified to protect their identities. Thank you for being part of the conversation and have a great day.